I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Welcome back to Sacred Season. I'm Erin Hawley. And I'm Danielle Hitchin. Sacred Season is dedicated to coming alongside listeners with encouragement for whatever season you're in, but especially if you're in the wonderful but challenging years (laughs) of parenting little ones. Each episode is built around a season of the liturgical calendar. We believe the church calendar is a helpful way of discipling our hearts and our time, and that each season can lead us into a deeper relationship with God and deeper understanding of ourselves. And we're so glad you've joined us today for our bonus Fat Tuesday episode. Woohoo! <laughs> Before we turn our hearts to the penitential season of Lent, Christians have traditionally celebrated one final hurrah the day before Ash Wednesday. Fat Tuesday is also known as Shrove Tuesday, Mardi Gras, Carnival, and Pancake Day, among other names. And although some cultures, in some cultures, Fat Tuesday celebrations have devolved into something a little bit more debaucherous that has little to do with Christian celebration, historically, Fat Tuesday was fat because <laughs> it was a time to eat up all your rich, fatty foods before beginning the great fast of Lent. And often this just meant combining your eggs, butter, flour, and milk to make pancakes. So this feast day was, in fact, just good stewardship. I love that. And I love, actually, that for the first time this year, uh, my family is going to celebrate Fat Tuesday. Huzzah! Uh, so I'm really <laughs> looking forward to that. Um, and my boys are particularly excited because they love pancakes. <laughs> yeah. They would have them every morning uh, if it were possible. And in fact, one of my favorite mom hacks actually involves pancakes. Mm-hmm. A friend shared with me the secret that you cook up an army-sized batch of pancakes. I'm talking <laughs> food for an army. Um, then you cook them all, uh, cook them a little lightly, pop them in the freezer, and then pop them in the toaster whenever you want oh, fresh yum. pancakes. So pancakes <laughs> with no mess. We also make them a little healthier, as the name of Fat Tuesday suggests. Pancakes aren't the healthiest option, so we put in some protein powder and some honey and those sorts of things. Oh, super mom. But needless <laughs> to say, the boys love them. <laughs> My kids are very partial to Fat Tuesday because they like any excuse mm-hmm. to have pancakes. But our Fat Tuesday tradition every year is to make Belgian liege waffles, oh, um, <laughs> which is a big mess, so we don't do them very often, but they've got these sugar pearls in them, and oh, they wow. are they are the best. So one thing that's particularly unique to Fat Tuesday in the liturgical calendar is that it's, well, not on the church calendar <laughs> at all. The liturgical calendar seasons and celebrations are centered around the life of Christ, and many other liturgical feast days are related to the life of saints, but Fat Tuesday is neither of those things. It's actually just a tradition that sprouted up out of the desire not to waste food. But if that means we get to eat more pancakes, then I am all about this pseudo-church feast day. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, before we get into the topic of feasting, let's wind it back a little bit to the human relationship with food. And I mean, talk about an it's complicated relationship. But before it got complicated with food, food was good. And in fact, food is the very first gift that God ever gives to man. We actually hear about food right off the bat in Genesis 1. God creates Adam and Eve, and then he blesses them, telling them to be fruitful and multiply, and he gives them dominion over the earth. And then he specifically gives them food. In Genesis 1, 29, God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Hmm. 
And I love this because it definitely means we're going to be eating some delicious food and our awesome redeemed bodies <laughs> in the new heavens and the new earth because that's what humans were designed to do. But in the meantime, food and the human relationship with food was subject to the fall and thus exists in the already but not yet tension of the Christian life. And because this podcast is 20 minutes and not 20 years long, we're not going to delve into that too deeply, but I would encourage you to do your own study of Genesis 3 and look at the ways that food is related to temptation, to power, to wisdom, to relationship, and to work just in that chapter. I love that reminder, and it's interesting to me, and perhaps not a coincidence at all, that the fall itself involved food. Mm -hmm. Of course, Eve ate of the apple um, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, something the Lord had said not to do. And from that day forward, we as humans, I as a human, can have a distorted view of food. The Apostle Paul, in fact, talks about this relationship in 1 Corinthians 6. And he says that all things are lawful, all things are good, but that he himself would not be dominated or controlled or enslaved by anything. Mm -hmm. And then this is interesting. He specifically relates it to food. He says, food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And what Paul is saying here is that food is lawful. As Daniel was saying, it's a good and wonderful gift. Uh, but it's also something that can master us. It's a gift that can become a source of comfort or a means of control, mm. something that we can put in place of God. So long ago, long before Christopher Kim Donuts existed, Paul was warning us not to be mastered by food, mm. but to give thanks before taking a meal, before breaking bread, in acknowledgement of the good gifts the Father has given to us. That's a great point, and I feel like the link between food and the divine is very clear, even just in the language that we use mm. to talk about food. You know, we eat a chocolate and say, oh, this is sinful, or this cake is devilishly good, or this meal is divine. And you know, I think about my own family and the ways that we relate to food and meals with each other. And I feel like our family microcosm displays all the good and terrible things about the human relationship with food. You know, I've got two older kids who are a little bit picky about things. And then my baby um, has had allergies, which has been a big struggle. And I never realized how much allergies just affect your entire culinary life and in some ways your social life because of what sure. you can eat when you're out or at other people's homes. And, you know, when she was born, um, she was a strictly breastfed baby, but she had an allergy to milk and to beef and to eggs, which really limited what I could eat. Um, and then she also had acid reflux. And so it took us a long time to sort all those things out. And even just nursing her was such a source of um, frustration and difficulty and pain for both of us. And it just really displayed for me the the complexities of mm -hmm. the family relationship with food, the human relationship with food. Um, but what we really want to focus on today is, it's not the bad things about food, but food rightly ordered, and especially food as a means of celebration and connection, remembrance and praise, which is to say feasting. Mm -hmm. Yay. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Erin, what, what comes to mind for you when you think about feasting? So I think the first thing that comes to mind when I think about feasting um, is my childhood memories of having mm. wonderful dinners uh, at my grandmom's table. And she would bring out all the leaves for a table. There would probably be 20 some people around it and the food would just be overflowing and all those good standby recipes that mm. we're all familiar with, the green bean casserole. Oh, my favorite. Yes. <laughs> the sweet potatoes uh, with marshmallows on top that did in fact uh, catch fire multiple times <laughs> and just these, these great old recipes. Um, and imagine my surprise when I joined my husband's family. And they have a very different uh, tradition surrounding feasting. And they have the great meals, um, complete with lots of family, but they change recipes every single year. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was so horrified the first couple of times. So what if it didn't turn out? <laughs> uh, but now it's fun. I've embraced the spontaneity. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's super fun. I, I also think about the traditional holiday feasts of Christmas and Thanksgiving or Easter 
Um, but I also think a lot about like paintings of medieval kings mm-hmm. with their giant turkey legs <laughs> or the descriptions of food from the Red Wall books. Mm-hmm. And my husband loves the feast scene in Hook where they imagine the food and then it appears. And anyway, but feasting, feasting has just been a central part um, of the Christian tradition for as long as the Christian tradition has existed. Mm-hmm. You know, feasting is first about our orientation to the Lord and it's an acknowledgement of God's bountiful gifts. I love that point about orientation and feasting is a way of orientating our lives and our hearts and even our stomachs towards God. And in this way, Fat Tuesday is not at all unique because it's hardly the only feast or the only holy day. Others include, as Daniel mentioned, the Feast of the Resurrection, which is Easter, the Feast of the Ascension, uh, and the feast associated with Pentecost and Christmas. Yeah, and there are also feast days to celebrate saints, like the culturally observed holidays of St. Patrick's Day and St. Valentine's Day, as well as other saints' feast days commemorating people like St. Francis or St. Augustine or St. Nicholas. And we remember that the Lord himself Mm -hmm. established eight feasts when he gave Moses the law. There was the weekly Sabbath feast, and then there are seven annual feasts, including Passover. And what these feast days have in common from the days of the Jews until now is that they commemorate a meaningful event or a faithful life. And they invite us to remember and to celebrate what it is that the Lord has done. I'm reminded of the story told in Joshua 3 and 4, where the Israelites crossed over the Jordan River on dry land. And it's just an impressive story as you read about the priests who are carrying the ark. And they step into the water, and as soon as their toes touch it, the water stopped, and they start piling up in a heap. And this allows the Israelites to walk across on dry land. Now, as much as I'd like to think that I would remember something like this, like this heap, this wall of water, the Israelites did something really wise. And each of the tribes picked up a boulder from the middle of the Jordan, and they erected them as a memorial to help them remember. In fact, Joshua commanded the Israelites to remember the miracle and to tell their children of the Lord's faithfulness. This idea of remembrance uh, also brings up just a sweet childhood memory of the little church in which I grew up. The hard wooden pews, they were really hard <laughs> um, and packed full. The whole church might have held maybe 50 people. In front and center, there was a simple wooden altar with words lovingly etched in a beautiful scroll. In remembrance of me. The simple reminder, a reminder of all that Jesus had done in offering his life as a sacrifice for mine. And a reminder of communion, the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body, of the offering to take and eat in remembrance of him. I'm so glad that you brought up communion because that um, is a is a weekly feast tradition. It's part of the, the observing the Sabbath. Um, and not all churches take communion weekly, but I worship in a tradition which does and which makes the Eucharist the climax of worship each week. And each week that we partake of the Eucharist, we are celebrating a feast because each Sunday is considered a mini Easter. Mm-hmm. And in the Eucharist, we remember the finished work of Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a mom of young kids, you know, half half the time it's just a miracle that I've managed to show up to <laughs> church, you know, dressed and with my children dressed. And um, I, I can't really listen to all of the service at any given time. You know, somebody's got to go to the bathroom. Somebody asks a question. The baby needs to be nursed or her diaper needs to be changed or she's just a little bit fussy. Needs to be taken out of the service for a few minutes. But I make it a priority to get back into the service every single week to make sure that I take communion. And every week, over and over again, it's a way that I found that God meets me where I'm at and pours out his grace on me. And I've just been so grateful for the weekly practice of feasting on the Eucharist. I love that weekly practice. And and recently, I've been struck by the importance of feasting even in drought conditions. Mm. So every time the Israelites looked at the Remembrance Stone, they remembered what God had done, the miraculously piling up of the waters of Jordan. 
And at least for me, it's particularly when life is difficult that I need to remember all it is that he's done, the ways he's gone before me, and the prayers that he's answered. The fact is we can always feast. We can always offer up a sacrifice of praise and lift God up for who he is and what he's done. These feast days help us in that task of remembrance. They point us to the awesome workings of God in our lives. They commemorate them, and they demand that we share them with our kiddos. I think that's such a great point. And as somebody who's had um, a good amount of wilderness season in the past year, the practice of actively praising God, even in the midst of um, pain or sorrow or trouble in your spirit, it's a really important way of orienting your heart and your life back to God. And um, it's been a, it's been a really wonderful practice for me over the past six months just to say, okay, I'm going to praise you and acknowledge that you're good and that you have given me good gifts, even though I'm not feeling like doing that right now. These metaphorical remembrance stones in my life have been an important part of, of reorienting my life to God and, Um, I love the way that food plays this role in our vertical relationship with God, but I'm also struck by the ways that food plays a huge um, horizontal role in our, in our relationships with one another. Um, I love that. And one of my favorite things about the early church is that historians tell us that the church just exploded mm. and tons of new converts. And the reason for this historians tell us is because the church was known by its love for one another and by its love for others and its hospitality. And that hospitality, of course, often involved food. <laughs> um, in fact, Paul tells us that as Christian communities today, we should practice hospitality. And there's something unique and special and bonding about sharing food and fellowship. I'm reminded of the Last Supper and how Jesus took the time to eat with his disciples. I'm not sure what I would do if I knew it was my last evening, But I don't think just having a simple meal would be on my bucket list. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> maybe a really excellent meal. <laughs> yes, <maybe. laughs> And yet on this, his final night of freedom, Jesus took the time to eat with his disciples. And I love that in, the, in this time period, you didn't sit around a table, but you actually reclined. So this, this sort of strange, kind of uncomfortable, slightly messy position. Yeah, that sounds like a bad for digestion. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, I love, that, I love that Jesus' last meal wasn't formal or mm -hmm. stuffy, but it was simple and joyful, and it was time mm -hmm. to connect with the people that he was closest with in his life. And, you know, if you circle back to mm -hmm. food as a gift in Genesis 1, you can see that food is central to our mission as Christians. You know, God blesses Adam and Eve, and he gives them the mission, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. But then God gives them the tool for the mission completion, which is food. Mm -hmm. He doesn't give them uh, fire, and he doesn't give them gardening tools, and he doesn't give them <laughs> indoor plumbing or air mattress for guests. He gives them food. And if we jump ahead to the book of Acts and we look at the work of the early church, as Aaron mentioned, we learn in Acts 2 that the earliest Christians devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship, to prayers, and to eating mm. together. That is central to the life of the Christian, to the life of the church. We cannot live out our mission without eating together. I love that. And one of my dear friends is a psychology professor, and she's so often saying that she finds sort of the cutting edge principles uh, in her field are actually revealed in God's word. And this, this horizontal importance of feasting, of fellowship, of living life together is supported by psychology. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, child psychologists tell us that family traditions like feasting are really important because they help to fulfill our children's need to belong and to believe. 
Oh, that's a great point. I mean, my kids, my kids are beginning to really love our family traditions Mm -hmm. and we, um, observe a variety of feast days that are, you know, secular, some are sacred. And then we've got a number of personally meaningful days in between, by which I mean, you know, birthdays and anniversaries. And we also like to celebrate the anniversaries of our kids' Mm -hmm. baptisms, Mm -hmm. which has become a really special tradition for us. I love that celebration of your children's baptisms in particular. What a special day. And my husband was looking the other day and discovered that it was one of our son's namesakes um, was uh, that was uh, his feast day. And the boys were so excited about learning this knowledge. And <laughs> so delightful. Yes, 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 <laughs> proceeded to demand all sorts of food. Well, and the, the great thing about these kinds of days is that they are um, times to to make space as a family, um, to reflect on the growth of the past year, to look at where you've been, to see what work God has done in your life, and then to celebrate those things with a feast. And mm-hmm. usually in our family, we make a feast of our honoree's choice. Mm-hmm. You know, so my um, my son always requests Moroccan kefta. And yes, <laughs> yes, he's three, almost four, and he loves Moroccan <laughs> kefta. It was so funny this year um, in preschool, his teachers went around and asked all the kids in his class favorite foods. You know, kids were saying mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and he said kefta. And his teacher said ketchup, and he said, no, kefta. And they said, what is that? He said, oh, it's like a meatball. And then his teacher was watching the Food Network that night, and she's like, oh, behold, Bobby Flay was making kefta. I had no idea. So I'm very proud that he likes kefta. Rest assured, he mostly lives on chicken nuggets and peanut butter sandwiches. This is the most far-field thing that he eats, but he loves it. Um, and my daughter loves Trader Joe's orange chicken. My husband always requests pot roast and cheesecake homemade. Of course, can't do anything store bought with my husband. Um, but you know, like these rhythms and these traditions are becoming such special events that we increasingly look forward to as a family. So I love that, that your own family microcosm, as you put it, shows us what a good gift, uh, that food is and can be and of the value, um, and joy in feasting. And when I think of the good gift of food um, that we enjoy during our own family's feast, this really reminds me of the joy with which one of my children approaches food, at least the sugary kind. (laughs) I think all kids approach the sugary kind with a lot of joy. (laughs) And one of his favorite things to do, no joke, is to requisition his dad's iPad, and instead of trying to find a video or a movie, he'll go straight to the New York Times cooking app. (laughs) Our family might be foodies. (laughs) Um, And he will look up desserts. And then he'll exclaim, oh, mom, come and look, come and see. And it's just his joy and his delight reminds me that food is a gift. It's one of the good things (laughs) from the Father of Lights. And as humans, we can, of course, distort food. But as Danielle mentioned, the garden's offering was presented to even Adam as a gift. So as we transition to the end of this episode, we want to look at one more name for Fat Tuesday, which is Shrove Tuesday. And who knows what a shrove is? Not it's, me. <laughs> it's not a particularly common word. I had to look it up. Um, and it's not a town in England. The word shrove derives from the word shrive, which is an old English word meaning to present oneself for confession and penance and absolution. And Shrove Tuesday, the name, comes from the significantly older tradition of making confession to and receiving absolution from a priest before the start of Lent. And the point of becoming shriven was to ready yourself for the discipline of Lent via self-examination, confession, and making your at peace with the Lord. So this Fat Tuesday, which is February 25th, we would encourage you to do three things. First, take some time to examine yourself and make confession to the Lord as needed and come to Ash Wednesday ready to partake of a holy Lent. Second, remember what it is that the Lord has done for you. Write it down. 
And this is important. Tell your children about it. Mm-hmm. And lastly, fire up your griddles. Yes. Feast on some pancakes or some leash waffles. <laughs> and just partake of the goodness and provision of the Lord with your hearts full of thanksgiving. Our next episode will be available on February 26th, which is Ash Wednesday, and we'll be discussing the liturgical season of Lent. We will close this episode with a meditation on scripture. Today's passage is 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. As you're able, take a deep breath, close your eyes, open your heart, and ask the Holy Spirit to call to mind instances of God's faithfulness to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.